podcaster passionate about empowering youth to raise their voices and tell their stories. On Global Youth Matters, they tell their stories in their own voices on their own terms. They have faced life challenges, social, emotional, health, physical, economic, political, and more. They've gone through rough times and have come out on the other side. Get ready because they'll blow your mind. I'm going to let them talk because their voices matter on Global Youth Matters. Hi, Selena. I am so happy to have you here with me today. And I would just love for you to share a little bit about about your background, like your name, because I know you have an interesting sort of middle name, or you can tell me a little bit about that and uh, where you grew up, a little bit about your education, just a little about about you. Okay. My name is Selena, Selena Jackson. That's my birth name. But Noir is not my real middle name. I gave myself that name. And it was a really, it was a fun joke. Like, so... I think it's more of a product of developing from the internetscape and trying to find a good catchy um, username, cert, like a name that like kind of will stick with you, like a personal brand, because personal branding in the di- in the digital age is like so like emphasized in my age group. And so I was like, I want to be creative, but I want to add my name to it. And so I was like, I used to really like Renoir's work. And then I was like, Selena, Renoir, blended together, Selenoir. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But then I realized I didn't like Renoir anymore. So I was like, with this name is now all my handles. Like, you got to use it. So I got to really like fight tooth and nail. And then so then I met up with a, I had a really good conversation with a woman who, who grew up in France and she spoke na- the native tongue in French really well. And so she was like looking at my username and she was like, Selenoir, like this, noir, Selenoir. That's kind of like a grammatically incorrect way of saying like, this is black. Like I haven't figured out how to like um, say it correctly in French, like c'est c'est noir, c'est le noir, but it's like literally translated, this is the black, but so this is black. So it's kind of like a way of like self-proclaiming like myself as like a black person and like how it is like a monolithic term that's often been like an umbrella term for everybody of the diaspora. But then it's like, it's kind of cool also as like this, mysterious air to me and like it's really cool for social media like it it works it's good brand name (laughs) cool for me too wow that's nice that's very much like proclamation of identity that's very cool yeah so I mean Selena you shared so many interesting things about you about sort of your passion as an artist and I would just love to hear I mean there's so much to talk about right um but I would just love to hear about you know your art and sort of how you got into it and what it means to you. And the stuff that you shared with me show that you're really an artist and activist and a philosopher, all three in one, which is really, really impressive. So if you could just share a little bit about, about your, you and your art and maybe, you know, after that, I can ask you more questions, but go ahead. I would, I, don't know. I would like to, I think like my art and education, cause art and education for me go very hand in hand. I fully believe that, as an artist, you're taking on the role of being a student for the rest of your life. And so I would, I often say like my work is self-taught, like the style that I currently work in is very self-taught, but I was, but I did like get my associate's degree at Montgomery College. But while being at Montgomery College for my under, for like a portion of my undergrad, I was also studying by taking a la carte classes at Washington Studio School located in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., while also constantly like reading and studying other um, methods, specifically by Juliet Artistides and her, the Florence Academy and the 
Art Renewal Center is the uh, movement that is new, not new, but it's more started, I think in the 80s, I believe, started with Florence Academy in Florence, Italy. And so their philosophy was bringing back the classical realism that was often lost due to the due to the major boom of abstract, abstract expressionism, conceptual work, which like those those styles have a great have their own great appreciation. They have their own need to be in arts and culture and art in art consumption and communication. But that was a style that I wanted to like work in. And so I really within like the theory of their educational of their education of like working like very old traditional styles of working with like a plaster cast working um, from life, working from one-to-one, like everything was just done to one, replicate the 3D to the 2D or retranslate the 3D to the 2D, but also take on using images and composing images. And I really, really found the point where I was studying under a man unnamed Daryl Smith, who was working as an, he was working as a resident artist, but he recently was started working as a resident artist for for a studio in Cominati in Philadelphia. And under that class, he was able to talk about the, the, the oldest traditional style of working from like metal smithing, like metal point, working with grinding paints, hand ground uh, pigments, the importance of that, the importance of the step-by-step process of making studies and treating the act of making art as an intellectual pursuit. So on top of making art, we were also making art and discussing our context behind it, which then helped hone in on my skill of being able to do all this research and also find value in the research, which is like the drawings, the sketches, the readings I did. A lot of my paintings require a lot of reading behind the scenes before it's ever produced. And I really find like that is like the biggest thing that creates like substance to my work. And I feel like that also aids in my style because then it shows like my work kind of like has the style that is very like aesthetically pleasing or aligns with high academic art or high academia itself. But then the subject matter that I prefer prefer to take on confronts academia and the gatekeeping and the downfalls of gatekept of gatekeeping and exclusivity and also how academia probably created a lot of ideas that we still hold on to today that are often they're often very faulty and false due to like one narrative being spun the whole way through for centuries. So maybe it would be a little you could tell us sort of what is that narrative or story or philosophy that you're actually trying to to tell through your art. I am confronting I guess like I guess like that's a good point. It started with me questioning, can artists be racist? And I was really like sitting there thinking, I was like in the car, it was like a long ride down to like Alabama with one of my former partners. And he and I were talking, I was reading this book and I was like, can artists be racist? And he was like, they're white, right? And I was like, you can't deny that. So was, I started like changing the way I looked at art because like when you look at like really great paintings, especially in the museums, like you kind of like not not canonize it, but you do kind of like canonize the painting and the artist because they're so, you put them on this pedestal, but then you forget to humanize them and also acknowledge that they themselves are humans growing up in a very different time than us and having their own personal biases. And so the potential for an artist to be racist 
is very possible because of they're most of them are white and male and cisgendered. And so their late, their viewpoints of the world and how they also translated their world through their work was also very biased. And I'd say like a good example is the Me Too movement, how the Me Too movement also translated into art where we were questioning how some images are misogynistic and should not be glorified to a certain level, how we're now addressing the male gaze and female gaze in art. And so like, I was also thinking about how does the white gaze and the black gaze is different, or maybe a better term would be the colonizer versus the, versus the colonized gaze. And there is like, and so it added like a lot of depth, a lot more like it went, so I went really, really under the surface. I was really wondering like, so how do racial stereotypes come about? Like we're communicating with each other and stereotypes are a necessary thing, not to say like, like race stereotypes are not inherently bad. It's more of a way to communicate differences with each other from different groups. Like we all have differences, but the level of demonization from stereotypes that have, that we now exist with are negatively affecting us and how we communicate with each other. And so the, then the first question, then the next question came up was, so where did the stereotype of monkeys come from? Which then led to me understanding racial um, sciences, phrenology of, and phrenology of the um, Enlightenment era, which is around the same time of the, of the great time of, col- of colonization and the great voyages and discoveries of, of unmarked territories, which we now know are territories that were inhabited by indigenous people that were, with, that were wiped off from their lands. And I remember this one article I read where it was discussing how the dissection of a great ape really created factions between anthropological scientists in Europe, where they saw so many similarities within this great ape that they dissected within human, within the human physiology that it made them like, think like, so are we deviations from apes? Like Darwin was not the first one to create these, create these questions. There were many others and his peers that were making, having conferences, writing books, articles, discussing this with each other, where there were factions that were created where some believe that we are very close to apes and that our physiology, and that, that is evidence of evolution. Some believe that maybe we are and some took on that idea, but then they took it as a hierarchical scale. And then there were those who took that idea and acknowledged that there are deviations of human nature too, which then led to, so humans and apes are also deviations of each other, just like how animals and plants have evolutionary deviations. Race is an example of it. But then they created a racial hierarchy where white men are at the top of the chain and each racial deviance is deviation is kind of like lower and lower and lower. Like where African, where people of African descent were at the bottom of the tier and somewhere in between, it was very ambiguous for Icelandic, Oceanic, Asian and native Americans. First nationers were kind of ambiguously within the center, but either way, it was always true. White males, white European males were always at the top and Africans and everybody else was an other and was a deviation of such. And then so it led to them also associated with beauty, God, and intelligence. And then also like that's where white savoritism came from. Then there are also like more sketches and studies that came from this. And then so 
images created by Petrus Camper and Blumenbach, they created like charts and charts and charts of measuring spatial structures, measuring the skull. And sometimes they were put in um, art school because they were still also learning how to create ways to paint and draw people who were not of African, who are not of white descent. They were also, so they were trying to find a way to create those images and they're using their studies to create these images. But also, if you also look in the other, in the other way, the high emphasis of Greco-Roman sculptures was also a result of them creating like this level of intelligence. That's where like, where we think of like, I think maybe you've heard of the argument of how Greco-Roman sculptures is a art is a mark of fascism because it was highly, it was also a way of highly regarding themselves of like, if it was like another way of like European men as scholars to be able to create like their pinpoint of this is a mark of high society and intelligence, which is like why a lot of Greco-Roman architecture, iconography really existed around the time of colonization. Like we got pre-colonial art and like you see it all through Washington, D.C. and our government buildings. Like so styles of art and art and artists do not exist on their own. And they also have it's like life replicates art, but then art itself is an is a representation of our ideals and we can constantly are reinforcing these ideals within ourselves within our museums and our cultural spaces within our education system and so that's where kind of like a lot of my work like came from and that's where like that's like hopefully that explains like what I'm confronting it was like the images I'm creating well first of all thank you for that great education so art and education do go together that's pretty amazing so I'm hoping that you're teaching as well <laughs> Or maybe that's something you should think of because that, that was really, really helpful. It is like, I mean, it's yeah, to understand the context and, you know, and um, also maybe you want to tell us a little bit. So how you're confronting, I mean, looking at your art, I see there's a lot of portraits and maybe you want to tell us what, what sort of role your own artwork, you know, why you chose those, that portraits, right. Is from what I saw, right. So far, I don't know if you're, you're doing other things, but what I saw on your website, which we're going to, you know, attach at the bottom of the podcast. And so, yeah, if you could tell me, tell us a little bit why you chose, right, oil portraits, is, is that correct? Yes. I guess I'll start with, I think it was documentation. I was documenting people I knew in real life. I just was so, I think I began with a lot of angst of like, I was reading and reading and reading about this so much. I was like, I that's not true. But yet it's true because it affects my experience in, in this world and how I've interacted with, like there are contemporary consequences to these very old, old ideas that we still hold on to in some way or another. So I was just like, my first thought was I want to change my own reality. And so I want to see more black people in paintings and I want to paint them in ways that in the ways of artists that I really, really enjoy and respect still, but still confronting the fact that like, still acknowledging the fact of like, you know, your ideas are kind of crazy. Like this does not fit with what we, what I believe in, nor do what the rest of us really believe in, I hope. And so it was just, just placing them and just like creating this level of respect and reverence that they've had, that a lot of other portraits within our museums have had. Like oftentimes I've only seen images of those of the diaspora. If they were like service, where they were like in service of somebody, they were decorated pets. They were, or else it was like running away, runaway slaves, really, really like gruesome images of the realities of cardinal slavery. And it's just like, I really wanted to just create a different, 
a different image and a different idea at first where it was like, there's so many different people around me. Everyone's beautiful. I want to celebrate that. And when you look at those paintings of like my colleagues and my friends, there's like, some people have noted that there's like a certain level of respect and autonomy. And then also like the emphasis of eye contact is really much there because there's also a thing where if, if you know how to look for it, people of color in paintings, they often don't make eye contact. And that also disconnects you from you as a viewer to you, to the subject matter. And so I want to create that connection that both humanizes and also you're able to connect with my painting and acknowledge that this is a living person. But then the pandemic hit and there was no more people to like paint. I couldn't like go outside and like get people to do it with me. I had, plus I was living in Rochester, New York, where the African-American population was very small compared to DC per capita. And so I was just like, I just got me. And so like, I started painting self-portraits over that time. And I've been doing it ever since where along with working with self-portraits, I was kind of like, really, really addressing how these theories are personally affecting me. And then so I was like, am I a monkey? Why, where does these beauty standards that I've grown up with and like thinking of my womanhood and girlhood, where did they come from? How are they, how do they manifest themselves? What am I doing? What, how is it affecting how I'm interacting with myself and others? And so one of them, I love talking about this one, but duality number one and two, because it was kind of a performance act on top of it being a painting because I was one starting my lock journey. And I believe that locked hair is a complete deviation from your beauty standards. Like it's one, a political act. And it's also like, there's nothing I can do to make this Eurocentric. This is, this is very other than that. And I have to accept and also it's a self-love journey of like, I have to accept whatever comes out of my head and it's not going to be pretty. Like you have to do a lot to really unlearn some things that you may not have thought that you were holding on to when it came to yourself and your image and the idea of letting go and taking a lot of mental energy away from your image and putting it towards other things is also like a prop, a part of it. So I feel like that's why some people talk about growing locks as a spiritual experience and it, it kind of is I can see how it is I just really like I just really like it like I felt like it's just like it just works for me but while doing that I also was like so how did I why did I want it to look like this like blonde hair blue eyed and I'm like brown skin kinky curly hair and so I, I did exactly what I felt like I wanted to look like I bought a blonde wig I put on like makeup that was like six tones too light and I really had to sit there in the mirror and really look at myself and be like, this is what you thought was beautiful for you. This is not you. And so I documented that in my painting. And the blonde wig is still like, this blonde wig still kind of makes its appearance. Like I'm still like working out these, these paintings of like confronting that within myself too, of like, what is beauty with a capital B? What is does beauty and currency, how beauty has its own social currency, what does it mean to stray away from that confronting myself inwardly and outwardly and also proclaiming myself as I am beautiful outside of the colonized gaze and and, and radical self-love being a very political act. Wow, that's a lot of sort of, I guess, deep self-awareness and a lot of 
deep messaging. And I see that you're you're quite an, a known DC artist, which is, you know, you have had a bunch of exhibits and grants and I heard murals as well. So that's really, really, you have a great platform to send your messages, right? I don't know if you want to touch on any of those, any of your the exhib- exhibits that you've done or grants or anything that you'd like to, to talk about? I think maybe talking about it in a very general term, I feel like I enjoy working in spaces with people and organizations that are very much aligned with me and my values. I think like after being working in DC's art industry for, I will be honest, about like two years, I feel like I'm pretty young in this. Like I'm pretty new and like, like my work has been around, but like I've been like putting myself out there a lot more. And so like with that comes with like many different people coming and and asking for you to like work with them, doing other exhibitions and projects, but then comes to understanding that like, I can't just do everything with everyone. And also like staying true to my nature of my work. I also have to make sure that I am in spaces where I do feel as though my work is being respected and that um, also having like, not worrying about the the voice in the back of my head being like, are you sure they're buying your work because they understand it or they're buying your work because buying art from black people is trendy because it's true. Like Charles white during like, I would say like the buying um, art from people of African descent has really picked up in like the early late 2010s. I would say like from 2015 to now we're now pushing for for more art for underrepresented people which like Charles White is a great example like his art bought being bought out even though he's been long passed away but also I will have to thank his student um, Carrie James Marshall because Carrie James Marshall was one of his students and without Carrie James Marshall's I don't feel like his work would have been advocated for and also Carrie James Marshall is one of like the one of the most highest one of the highest paid living artists of our time right now and so it's like I have to understand that sometimes like People may want to consume you because it may be a, it may be a potential flip, and I have to understand that. So I have to. So I'm choosing more often to work within nonprofit organizations or preferring to have organizations that are run by um, women or people of color, African Americans, African American artists. Finding a collective, I found like a really really big collective of. African-American artists within D.C. and D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, like this whole like trifecta, this area, really great working artists. It started all from social media, too, where I would just like follow them, go to their shows or just DM them. And it's just been a constant like supporting each other of like going out to exhibitions and going out, socializing with each other, connecting with them. But then also with connecting with them and creating like really great relationships with them, they've also like helped me understand about the the big um, population of people in in, the, in DC who want to exclusively show African-American work who are collectors and are African-Americans. And so like, or women, my colleague of mine, she, my friend, colleague, friend, friend, she, my friend. <laughs> and so like, she's, she and another woman started a gallery space in Kensington and they highlight working with women and other art marginalized groups, but ex- but mostly highlighting women in the arts and creating spaces where it's one affordable and two, they have the women artists have a lot of autonomy. And 
I think that's like a really big highlight of like my recent exhibitions was like, I continue to work with people who I do feel as though my work is respected. They so I support their mission a hundred percent and that they also emphasize giving autonomy to artists and giving them space to work and create and to connect and not gatekeep each other, not gatekeep clients. Like they're, and also like not hopefully from what I've seen so far, not, and acting in exploitative behaviors because working art artists are like really exploited, whether we know it or not. Like we see like really big ticket selling sellers, like, you know, from like Sotheby's and, and um, Christie, but a good 2% and oftentimes 80% of their work that is being sold and auctioned off are people who have long gone and passed, who one are also have really large estates with really big people to continue to support their name. So it's also understanding that, after a while, as an artist, if you get so big, you are a consumable item. You're no longer a person and your work is no longer a personal act. It is now an enigma and a product. And so it's like, I'm, right now I'm at that phase. Where I'm trying to find that balance of like staying true to my work and staying true to myself and just trying to like still keep myself human and understand. And I think also like saying no to things has been really helpful in this process now where I'm like, I want to spend time with my work and with myself to make sure that what I keep creating is just as magical as everyone else has seen so far. I don't want to lose that spark because of overproduction and unrealistic expectations. I'm only one person. I'm not a product. Thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to step back a little bit and kind of talk about your path, like a little bit about where you came to art, like as, you know, your childhood maybe, or maybe the impact of Sitar, the, the organization, and a little bit of maybe some, a little bit of that background and maybe some of the challenges you've had along the way as an artist or any challenges that you, you want to talk about. I guess I'll start off like I was a, when I was a kid, I remember my first memory of like being like, I want to be an artist, mommy. I was like six years old. I was six years old. It was one of those like classroom assignments where we had to make like a little photo album of like our life, like our little timeline or a little six-year-old timeline. And so it was like, and so at the end of it, it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my mom was like, you should be a nurse. I'm like, no, I'm going to be an artist. And so that's that was the first that was the first one. Where I was just like, I just I came out the womb knowing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it's so cliche, but I'm being so serious. I I came out the womb and said, I'm gonna beat this. And 20 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> I made it. I made it my job. That, that is a gift. I have to tell you because so many people struggle to find their gift. Right? That is a gift to know. I do say like, it's a little bit of a gift, but it's also like a lot of hard work behind the scenes. Like there's only like, you can only, you can't only sustain fire. You have to know how to rebuild that fire once the spark leaves. So there's, but I will, I will take, I will take that. I do appreciate that. I went to a very small Catholic school for both elementary and middle. So I had a lot of time and freedom and resources to support my, my love of art. I think like high school was where things got a little shaky for me. At one point, I wanted to be a criminal, um, as criminal, criminal psychologist or psychiatrist, like study like forensic science and like study human remains and like anatomy and chemistry. But then after a while, like when I hit my junior year of high school, I was just like, I don't like this. I really don't like it. Like it was respectable. 
because of the school I was in, because it was like a very, like very liberal arts school that had a very heavy emphasis of STEM, which is like not, was like not like to shame the school for it. It's like, you know, it's like, it's not just a fit, like, like, but you're not, but as, as a high schooler, you don't really have like a large, a lot of choices to make. Like you're really like swayed by the adults around you that are telling you like, this is what they're going to offer you and you're going to have to take it and, and deal with it. So I like, I still made do with what it was, but when I got to my junior year, I was like, I think I want to be an artist. I really do think I want to go to school for this. I can go to school for this. And so I told my parents, I want to go go visit Micah. I went to their open house for their rising seniors and rising college freshmen. And they were just like, and they were talking about their pre-college program where you can go and study with them for about six to eight weeks. And I asked my parents, I was like, if I get this application done, will you let me go? And they were like, okay. They didn't, th- I don't think they thought I was going to do it. I really don't think so. But I did. Like, mm-hmm. I got that application done within a week of the due date. And because I found out two weeks before the due date, I got the, I got like the whole thing, like straight from bottom ground level. Like I had the portfolio, like I really created like artwork for a whole week straight. And then I put it in. And applied for their oil painting and acrylic figure painting um, course. And then I got like a minor in book arts. That's like they had to set up like that. So it's kind of like a little college. Like, And I got in and I went and I spent like my my rising senior year from 16. Like, yeah, I was like six, 17. I was going on 17 that summer. Yeah, I was going there for that time. And I really realized how intense art school can be. Even though it was like so still, still like a summer course program for teenagers, it still was pretty intense. Like I was going to school for six days a week. So for three to four days, I had to do my painting studio class, but that was from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day that I had that course on top of. And then those in-between days, between those times, I had some days where I was only doing my book arts class, but that was also from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. And then... Also on Saturdays, I had lectures, art history lectures, where we also had to do museum visits throughout the Baltimore County. And so that we were also being graded. So it was, it was, I got a taste of what it was like, where I was like, if I can get through this, then that means that I should go to art school. And I got through it. I made like really cool paintings. I pulled my first all nighter and I trugged through it. I listened to some great lectures. I got a glimpse of some great films from an artist who was an alumna from there, 12 O'Clock Boys. It's a really great documentary. He was on talk. I think he was getting ready to debut it into Sundance. We were one of the first people to view the to view his um, stuff. And then I didn't end up going to Micah for my undergrad, unfortunately, because then the reality hit where art college is really expensive if you're doing this full time. And I was like, so determined to say like, I'm going to go get my, I'm going to get a degree in this. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. I'm going to study. And that's how I ended up at Montgomery College where they had their own arts course program, provisional arts program. And they, it was really great because on top of being like getting my fine studio arts degree, I had to also be integrated into digital arts because that was a requirement for also them like being able to help us become more adaptable within the new within the new um, art market that was developing and being able to also know how to do use basic Photoshop video editing and things like that. So I really am happy that 
they they really pushed me into that direction. And also going to a cheaper college also allowed room in the budget to experiment more. So I was able to take on courses in printmaking. I did intaglio printmaking. I did ceramics. I took art appreciation. I took color theory twice. Um, that was a hard class. Design studio, 3D design. I learned in 3D design about how to do plaster casts and body casting. So that was fun. Like it, it was a great opportunity to play around. But also like during that time, I was also taking figure painting classes and doing dropping classes at Washington Studio School on the days that I would have like, you know, half day classes. And then also during my summers, I did volunteer work. So I was also doing sitar while also going, I did one summer volunteering as a gallery guide at the Hirshhorn Gallery. But I think like, so I was doing like a lot of stuff at once. I think like, let me go back and talk about sitar. I started sitar in high school, but it continued on after college. Like I think like, well, until like my mid twenties, mid twenties. Yes. So I was introduced to sitar when I was in high school, sophomore year. One girl I knew was doing musicals there. And I was like, there's a plate, there's a program to do musicals. Cause I was really itching to find something to do outside of school. Cause all we had was sports and, and math club. Like it was cool. I mean, but it was like not my thing. And so I went to one of her performances and then they were talking about their summer intern program that they were having where they employed, they employed some kids in DC. Now I knew about SYEP cause I've done it before. But Sitar had their own way of doing their application where SYEP would pay them, but they had their own application process and they had like multiple different programs they're offering. There was camp assistant, there was musical theater assistant, there was office assistant and the mural arts program. And that was one I ended up in where it was a group of 10 to 15 teens ranging from 14 to at that time, 21. And so everyone had their own different experiences. Some of us were in high school. Some of us were getting ready to be in college. Some of us were getting ready to be out of college. Some of us have been in sitar since they were like six years old. Some of us are just starting with sitar with the SYEP program. And I was one of them. And I was one of the newbies that started up. And so we would do projects. Like we kind of were basically commissioned by people throughout the city to do murals. And our biggest commission that I like, I'm so happy to say I was part of was Occasions Catering. We did a big mural outside of their warehouse because they were like, we wanted to, their, their thing was they wanted to stop the graffiti on the outside of their building. And so they were just like, you want to like have some kids paint a big mural for us? And at first it was like 10 feet by 30 feet. So it was like, at first it was small and they were just trying to see if the graffiti artists would like touch it. Cause like they weren't going to continue to invest in it if it was going to like get destroyed every time. But then for some reason, the graffiti artists were just like doing graffiti underneath it. Like they weren't touching our stuff. And I was like, so they kept like asking us to come every year for about like six years, I believe. Yeah. Six years, I believe they, we continued adding 30 feet to the mural to the point where it's almost touching the whole width of the back of the warehouse. You can see it when you're traveling between Fort Totten and Brooklyn station on the red line. It's really pretty. Like the whole theme was farm to table because that's a, that's the thing that occasions catering love to like emphasize within their catering business was that they provided, they, they wanted to emphasize holistic practices within producing and farming and how, 
they were local source food and they served the community and was part of the community and was taking from the community, like just emphasizing those aspects in there. And like, we got creative. Like we were like doing like really large kitchen scenes. We would like do seafood one year. They, one year I missed it. Next thing I know, I was on the train. I saw Gaia, an image of Gaia in the painting. I was like, okay, so mother earth, we're like going all, they're going that far. With Sitar, it offered a lot of leadership opportunities for me because every year you kept going, they would they would give you more responsibilities as a teen intern. And then I was assisting with classes. I was leading classes. I led one of my first classes at 19 years old as, was I 19 or was I 20? I was getting 20, 21, 19, 20, 21, somewhere around that time. And I was an intern leader. An intern leader is basically you're kind of managing the team, whatever team you're in. So I was intern leader for the mural arts program. And with that came with also working with the higher achievement program and they had their elective class. And I was teaching the elective class where we were partnering with them, where you were teaching them how to make paintings, make art, general art education, but also including them in the process of making panels so they could be contributing to our mural. And so I had like five higher achievement kids aged from seven to nine years old. And they made like their like little 10 by 10 panels and it was like adhered to their, so they were able to be a part of the process. Once like I kind of aged out of the SYAP program, I still came back to Sitar, but it was like, after moving back to DC during the pandemic and I was working as a gallery arts intern, I was just really trying to find something. Cause I was like, I was still like making a lot of art, but I was like trying to find jobs related to art. And I was like, maybe being a gallery intern would like help. And I got really keyed into like how scheduling exhibitions happen. A lot of community outreach how art and philanthropy go hand in hand and also like being a gallery intern during the time where the pandemic was kind of lightening up to put the best terms to it people were really 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 vocal about their ideas and needs and also working on bridging the gap between those that weren't able to access art education anymore due to like money issues are now very apparent right now. Transportation issues are very apparent right now. Health crises, disability um, accessibility was were big things that we we're both thinking for staff and students where some people just were not coming back because of just major concerns they're having. People have relocated. We we're also addressing how gentrification has caused a lot of our a lot of our families to relocate because they can't afford to continue to come back and forth all the way to Northwest DC where they had to leave and go to PG County, Southeast, Southwest, Northeast, like basically not close as they used to be. And it was also like navigating through that. And then also working in their after school program and seeing the new population of students and what challenges they're working with post pandemic, where they're struggling with stressors at home, where parents are ill, financial troubles are now not like hidden as they used to be for them. They're also like becoming very self-aware these days because of either it's the age of the internet or um, kids these days are just able to have more open-ended conversations about identity and themselves. That's the thing that I really was able to 
I think that was the moment where I really started understanding how art is another form of communication and another important part of education itself too. Because during the summertime, I was able to lead my own aftercare program for six weeks. And I had kids from seven to 10 years old, like nine was the average age for that group. And Sitar is a melting pot, but now due to like everybody moving, new people moving in and out of the neighborhood where we're having a mix of more and more Latin American people or Latin immigrants coming in and they don't speak a lot of English, just being accommodating to that. Also like other type of immigrants, we have um, Korean Americans, we have Ethiopian Americans, while also like having African-Americans and non and non people of color living in the area. And though their children are now here and it was interesting to hear their conversations. And I was like coming from a place of empathy where I was like, these kids are just exposed to so much and they're having conversations with each other about who they are and what they are. They're navigating very complicated things that, often we have not had to address so publicly and so constantly. And so I developed my aftercare program with my group to really focus on that, where I talked about imagery, I talked about identification, I talked about self and your identity, like yourself, like talk about who you are. And so I focus a lot on portraiture. I was like, portraiture is another way of self-imposing and creating and really like manifesting how you look, how you feel and how you look. But I was also changing like how it is. Like we can do portraits about our feelings, like colors represent feelings. So how do we, we can make portraits about that. Portraits like collages where certain images are very are very personal to you where you can just like make a collage of like a self-portrait collage of like, but not using images of people using yourself of like thinking of like soccer or jewelry or theater, maybe talk, maybe images from your home country. Also have like an open discussion where I discuss like how our languages can be very harmful to each other just because of how much on the internet it may seem like a joke, but not everybody takes things as a joke. How we can better communicate with each other in a way where we are very, where we are creating safe spaces for our differences to be celebrated and respected. And that you that you guys are just very young and you're just now becoming aware of these topics at hand and understanding like how our climate has been recently politically and that there's nothing to be ashamed of for being different we just have to now learn how to talk to each other which then led to me discussing skin tone and then them being able to focus on creating using color to like it was like a whole thing where I was like Let's create, like, let's match our skin tone and make a skin tone portrait where it's just nothing but your color. And it was like, because it was based off this artist I saw in National Portrait Gallery in Gallery Place, where they were nothing but self-portraits, but they were only skin tones of people that he sat with. And I was like, that is a very big identifier. And we all look different. I look different from you. You look different from him. We all speak different languages, too. Like, we all have different backgrounds. Let's just, the art products I created for them was a very big I felt like it was a really big milestone for me where I was like, this is important for them and how art is another another tool to help them communicate things that they may not know how to put to words or communicate the very crazy things that they're now becoming aware of in this lifetime. 
Oh, thank you. One thing before I go on to my next question, I noticed you said S-Y-E-P. What does that stand for, for people who don't know? Oh, S-Y-E-P stands for Summer Youth Employment Program. And so that is a program where they employ DCU for like, right? Like basically between that time where school is in and out with like maybe like two weeks off for like vacation time if needed. And so started by our mayor, Marion Barry, he's forever the mayor. <laughs> and basically it gives a chance for, for teens and they expanded it to now can include young adults up to age 24, where they're able to gain work experience have understand what it's like to have the responsibility of giving, getting a paycheck every two weeks, understanding how to like just have that responsibility of having a summer job, but not having to, but taking out the middleman of getting like a work permit and trying to find your own place of employment. They do all that with you. And it's a great way to like keep everybody like busy. It's great to do a lot of character building because some programs people have done working with children, working in government offices. Like I know some people work within the DOE Department of Employment Services, DOES. Some people have interned with like some parts of the Smithsonian and like many different programs within the city offer offer a space where they where people have like specialized interests where they can be like I want to choose this site and like we can choose where we want to go, but either way if there's always space, if there is space for you, they will match you regardless. So you won't be going in this program without a job. If there is space, I know space has been really limited lately due to funding, but from when I was doing it, there was a lot of opportunity for being like, you'll just be put, you'll find a job. Yeah, that's a great opportunity. So what I see so far in terms of you're just a person who's extremely determined and whatever opportunity comes your way, you've taken. And I see that, right? You've taken and you made the best of it. And then in terms of even, you know, doing the summer program and working with Sitar, who I'll put their link at the bottom of the podcast as well. It seems that you're just a person who knows what they want and has taken opportunities and made things happen, right? Yeah. So I just want, I was going to ask you a few questions about sort of what some kind of guidance for people that have been in your shoes or that you may tell a younger you or somebody like you. For example, so what, what are some of your biggest life lessons so far? Life will hit hard. You can never predict life. And that I think it is okay to not always be on the path that you wish to be on because you never know what may happen for you. Like, let me say, I don't know, it's like, it's really like, Hmm. Oh, this is a really hard question for me. Because like no one's journey is ever the same. Like I think like if you focus only on yourself, you would understand that your journey is your own journey and that like you are working with whatever resources you are given and that doesn't make you better nor worse than the next man because you never know what things that they've had to overcome, what resources that they've had access to or opportunities that they have access to that you may just be starting out when understanding that. Accept that things may not happen the way you believe it may happen, but also it can it's not always a bad thing because things may happen for the absolute best. And you just like how believing the worst is always possible, sometimes believing that the absolutely the absolutely more most ridiculous optimal outcome is absolutely possible too. And I think not working in isolation, like I know being an artist, there is a romanticization of working in isolation, but in reality, you're not alone. And 
great art is not created alone. Find a community of people who are doing what you are doing or doing what you wish you were doing and be around those who support you and you will also want to support them. So you can create a really great community of people where you don't feel like the journey is unrealistic and unattainable. Allow yourself time to rest and take care of yourself because sometimes the reality of having to work two, three jobs is real to support yourself. But if you really work hard towards it and you know like there's only a short there is this is only a short term situation, you will get through this. And be creative. Like you're not working a nine to five. You decided to not work a nine to five for a reason. So why treat yourself like you're working a nine to five? Art is the most anti-capitalistic act. So don't force yourself to be within a capitalistic machine. If you can just do what you want to do and be okay with doing what you want to do, even if not everybody supports you. Also, a lot of those are, you know, it seems a lot on the podcast community has come out as a big thing. The importance of like connecting and commuting and having support. And then I like how you said rest. I mean, is that something that you've had to do to kind of, <laughs> yeah, remind yourself? Yeah, I think it's like, again, like it's romanticizing of like, like working like 10, 15 hours a day. Like also like you're also tired from like working like an eight hour job five days a week. And then like. You, it's like in reality, like, yes, conserve your energy. Like there will be things that are sacrificed. Like sometimes my social life takes a backseat. Sometimes like my job sometimes takes a backseat if things are like really popping off on this end of this, of this end, because it does make me income now, but it is still like necessary to know like you're, you're still a human being and that you do deserve days off. And sometimes those days off take them as a way to recharge, like, when resting, I've been able to really problem solve a lot better when it came to certain paintings or projects I'm working on, or maybe like I'm feeling a bit burnt out and like artist block comes in and I'm just like trying to think and I'll like take some days and weeks to like go to a museum, talk to friends, go to art galleries, read. Like you're always an artist, whether you're painting or creating. Like the, a lot of the work happens in the mind. That's You're just putting it to paper at this moment. So just like those moments of rest and just daydreaming is you still working as an artist because you can't be an artist without great ideas. Wow, well, that's a really nice way to end. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So yeah, nice. A lot of inspiring words, I think, for artists. I heard persistence, community, rest, which is really creativity as well, right? taking care of yourself. So thank you for that. And thank you for this wonderful interview. We will definitely attach a link to your website and we hope to keep hearing about you. We'd love to go to some exhibits that, that you have soon. So thanks again. That was a really great interview. And if there's anything else you'd like to say, please feel free before we fully close. Major event. I am the resident artist of winter 2023 at the Capitol Hills Arts Workshop. So that's an eight week program. And yeah, I'll be there. My, I think they're putting press out on their website right now. So there'll be more details about that in the future. But it's starting. I start the residency as soon as the year turns. 2023 is exactly when it starts. <laughs> it starts in the year. Yeah, great. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. This is the Global Youth Matters Podcast. We hope you'll subscribe or follow us at Apple Podcast or your favorite pod platform. 
We would really appreciate it if you leave us a positive review, especially on Apple. This helps us build an audience. Finally, we want to hear from you. You can reach us by email at globalyouthmatters at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.